Well, just as people wander back in, Peter, do feel free to, can you leave the door open? So people are going to be wandering back in from dropping their kids off, but I thought I'd take the opportunity to take us to our notices. So hopefully you were given one of these when you came in. It's an in-touch. It tells you about what's going on in the life of the church. And there are a few things just to draw your attention to. Gareth's already mentioned free at TKC. I do be praying for that wonderful opportunity to take children through the good news about Jesus happening just in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, An opportunity to pray for free at TKC is when we all meet together. Do you notice which words I use in that sentence? When we all meet together for our prayer meeting on Tuesday night at 7.45 in the Fraser Chapel. It's going to be a bit of a squeeze with all of us there, but we can just about fit us in. And we'll have this great opportunity to come before our Heavenly Father and to ask Him to give us good things that He's promised to give us as He works amongst us to bring others to know Jesus. Uh, you'll see also on the front, in, uh, on Friday, there is a men's pie night. Having lived in the north of England for 11 years, I'm very sad that I, I'm not able to be there. But for the rest of you, you can have that northern experience pie and gravy. But most importantly, during the evening, one of uh, our church family, uh, Tony Sage, will be just talking about the difference the person of Jesus has made to him. Within an ordinary sort of life, he has known an extraordinary God. Uh, it'll be down to earth. It'll be a great thing to bring other blokes to, uh, to hear about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do be making that a priority, men, if you can make it at all. Uh, you'll see also on the in-touch sheet all of our Easter events listed. Um, please do pop those in your calendar so your phone goes off and you know that in 10 minutes' time I should be at the Good Friday service. Uh, so pop those in. I'm going to ask Vicky Cooper to come up now, and she's going to bring us our Bible reading from 1 John. If you'd like a Bible and you don't have one, uh, if uh, stewards will come up around with Bibles, just sort of stick a paw in the air. There's one down there, and uh, they'll bring you a Bible. Hi, good morning. As Daph said, the reading is from the book of 1 John. It's chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. On the church Bibles, it's page 1228. So that's 1 John, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. Sorry, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life.
Thanks, Vicky. Well, do keep that open as we look at it together. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the speaking God, and that through your Word, by the power of your Spirit, you testify to your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please give us ears to hear your testimony this morning, minds to understand it, and hearts to accept it, that we might know what it is to say that we are loved by God and to love him in return, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Now, as a a leading on Tuesday night, one of our hub groups, our 20s to 30s groups, and we were going around, as you do sometimes at the end of Bible studies, and getting some requests about what people wanted us to pray for. And there was one lad there, and he was very honest, and he he said, look, um, I came out of last Sunday's sermon on 1 John 4, about God's love for us, and how that makes us want to love one another. And he said, I was determined I was going to be more loving. I, I was going to be more caring. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it, he said. And then he paused, and this is Tuesday, remember, after Sunday, and he looks around the room and he goes, it's not as easy as it sounds, is it? Has, has that been your experience in 1 John? Uh, we've looked at this book that time and time again has told us that the normal Christian life is one on love. And yet, it's been quite hard work. Uh, If you're here for the first time, you probably won't know, we're working through this letter from the Apostle John to early Christians. He's got a purpose in writing. He tells us that in chapter 5 and verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. What, What John's doing is he's describing what is a Christian, what a normal Christian looks like. He's probably doing that because there are false teachers in the church at the time. They're giving both a distorted view of Jesus and also a distorted view of what it looks to follow Jesus. And so after the last, over the last few weeks, we've seen John build up a picture week by week of what a real Christian is like. And each week we've added a bit of clarity. We've seen that the Christian can't separate the truth about Jesus from love. The Christian can't separate what they believe from the way they behave. Now, John's picture's been a bit uncomfortable at times, hasn't it? Probably no more so than when he's talked about the issue of how we love one another. So, we ended last week with chapter 4 and verse 21. John writes, And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And that's not a sort of warm, fuzzy feeling to the people at church you may or may not know. No, John defined what love was just a a few verses before. Do you remember it? 1 John 4 verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Love is a deliberate decision to give the most precious thing that you have to people who treat you very, very badly indeed. That's what God has done. He's given his one and only son in love to us so we can be forgiven. And John starts with this exactly same issue of love today. So chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So if you believe in Jesus, John says you've been born into a new family. It's something that's been done by God to you. 
And just like with Isla Kinnaird or with Eden Park, the, the two latest babies born in our church, they didn't really have very much to do with their birth. It was something that was done to them. They didn't arrive in the world going, yes, I pulled off making it out of the womb. No, it's experienced. It was done to them. And so it is with God. God is the one who brings people into his family. And he does that by working in our hearts. And you know that God's been at work in your heart, says John, when you love other people. You love other Christians. It's in the family DNA, if you like. When you're a child of the God who is love, then you love him and you love others in the same way that he loves you. It's not like a demand you have to meet. It's not a desire you sort of try and muster up inside yourself. It is God's work in you. It can be tough loving other people, can't it? Am I the only one who sometimes thinks I'd just like a quiet evening in and not to go out and see that person or go to that group? It can be tough loving other people. So how on earth am I going to do that? Well, what we see today is John tells us how the normal Christian life is, a, is possible in loving one another. And here's the first thing he says. He says, faith in Christ is the key to victory. Faith in Christ is the key to victory. The victory in the battle to love God and other people. Look what he says down in verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. Now that's actually not naturally what we want to do. See, our heart's desire, in fact, the heart's desire of every human being is self-love. It's self-rule, making up our own commands. But what marks out the people in the family of God is they love him and they strive to do what he wants. More than that, John says in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. God's love drives our obedience to him. An obedience to God's commands, which tells us to love him and love others. And they're not burdensome, because they're the commands of a loving Heavenly Father. A gracious God who's given us of his own Son. I mean, do you think the God who who gave his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is then going to be severe or harsh or mean in the way that he gives us commands to obey? No, they're, they're as loving as anything else he does. But but a lot of people seem to think that that God just looks down from heaven and enjoys raining raining on our barbecues for fun. That that, that God is just basically miserable in telling us what to do. Now now when you think like that, we're we're actually believing the devil's lie. that, That God's a cosmic spoil sport. That was the lie he sold the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, in in the Garden of Eden. He, He convinced them that God was holding back on them. Look, Eve, you want to eat that fruit, the fruit of that tree. Yeah, the one God said, you you shouldn't eat of it, you can't eat of it. You want to eat it, it'll make you wise. You'll be like God. He's holding back on you, Eve. You'll be able to choose how you run your own life. Eat of that fruit. There aren't any consequences, Eve. You go for it. And actually, that's the message of, of the world. Do what you want. Be who you want. Life's all about you. I've even had Christians tell me, well, it's really important that I learn to love myself if I'm ever going to love other people properly. And loving self means basically not denying your feelings and your desires. 
And the world has turned other people loving you into them not denying your feelings or your desires. It's all about you. The problem is, it's a lie. It doesn't work. Loving self just leads to a miserable life. The culture of humanity, the culture of self-love, is the culture that's had to develop the antidepressant, the therapist, the counsellor. You see, the world might say, oh, God's commands, they're a real burden, they're a bore. But loving him, it's just repressive. Freedom's found in loving yourself and doing what you want. But all the evidence shows that self-love leaves people weary and miserable and stressed. Whereas Jesus, what does he say? He says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. To take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or as that one commentator beautifully put it, he said this, Our loving Heavenly Father's commands are no more burdensome than wings are to a bird. And the thing is, God's children actually have all they need from God to be able to love him. That's what Paul say, uh, John says in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. In other words, if you're one of God's children, you're going to overcome the world. You can live a life of love for God and for other people. And how do you do it? Your faith. And you might think, well, no, 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 Daph, you don't know about my faith. I mean, my faith is, is very, very weak. I mean, mo- most days I struggle to believe anything, let alone b- believe everything in the Bible. But it's not actually the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. Look what John says in, in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Literally, who is the one conquering the world if not the one believing that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, faith turns your eyes from yourself to Jesus. It trusts on him. It depends on him. It looks to him. That's what overcomes the world of self. Because, because people are, are not slow. See, John wants us to really understand this. Have a look. He uses the word overcome or victory four times in just a, a couple of verses there in verse 4 and 5. He's rubbing it in. You will overcome. You are overcoming. You have overcome by looking to Jesus. See, our victory in living lives of love has a name. He's the one who frees us to love God and each other. Rather than believing the world's lies that that self should be our first love, that that personal comfort is, is where we'll find happiness, the genuine Christian is someone whose faith takes their eyes off themselves and fixes them on Jesus. Now, now life can seem sometimes like you're standing at the end of a bottom of a a huge cliff, can't it? A massive towering cliff in front of you. And and you've been told to to climb to the top. And the world says, it's all about you. I I found this, this is one of these classic statements. Here to the next slide, Peter. Life is a story. Make yours the bestseller. It's all about you. And you're looking up at this cliff, and you say, the world says, you can do it. You can learn free climbing. 
You just need to believe in you. The, the problem is that I hate heights. And I have the strength to body weight ratio of a man who struggles to get out of the sofa, let alone up a cliff. I have no climbing tool technique. And the world says, no, no, really, you can do it. It's all about you. So I set off, afraid, scared I'm going to fall, slipping, struggling, time and time again. And what do I find out? I find out I can't do it. Because actually learning, an 18-stone man learning to free climb out of the Grand Canyon is far more likely than anyone ever managing to love God and love other people perfectly. But that's often what life feels like, doesn't it? Scrambling up a cliff in our own strength. Whereas what John is saying is, no, God has come down. Like one of those men on a hoist from a helicopter, in the person of his son, he has come right down to where you are. And he's embraced you. And he's got hold of you. And he's saying, I'm dragging you out of here. It's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride. We'll knock against the cliff from time to time. But I'm dragging you out of here. You have overcome. You see, that's what John says here. The victory is faith in Christ. It's not because of you. It's because of him. It doesn't matter how weak you feel you are. It doesn't matter how much you feel you're losing the battle to obey God. You are overcoming the world because you trust Jesus and he has overcome the world. And to help us see why it's worth then putting our faith in Jesus, how it is that Jesus can drag us through life. Well, John secondly says this, testimony is the key to faith in Christ. Testimony is the key to faith in Christ. Because have a look at the second section there from verses 6 to 12, and you'll see how many times the words testimony are repeated. In our translations, it's actually repeated eight times, the word testimony or testify. In fact, it's in verse 4, In verse 9, four times alone, John says this, We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has testified about his son. Our translators put the word given in because they thought it sounds a bit stupid saying testify so much. But but that's what John wants you to realize. It's testimony from God about Jesus. And what is that testimony? Well, verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, these verses are a little bit tricky because John doesn't use these terms, water and blood, anywhere else in his letter. But but the interpretation that seems to fit best is that water is referring to Jesus' baptism, when God his Father testified to his Son. And blood is referring to Jesus' cross, where again it testifies to who Jesus is and what he has done. And the Spirit is the work of the the Holy Spirit in causing John and the other apostles to write down those events and then in writing them on the hearts of those who believe in him. You see, when Jesus was baptized, the water, a voice was heard from heaven. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. A voice said this, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. See, at the start of his ministry, the father declares that his son is loved, delighted in. So if you are having faith in Jesus, it's not just a man who lived in history. It's the precious, eternal son of God. It's the God who draws close to us and is clothed in humanity. 
So when you see Jesus in the Gospels, when, when you see him stoop to touch a leper in compassion, when you see him take a, a little child and place them on his knee and bless them, when you see him standing up to the, the self-righteous religious hypocrites of the day, when you see him welcoming the fragile and, and the failures of his society, what, when you see him, what you're seeing is the Son of God who I delight in, says the Father. And then the blood? Well, at the cross of Jesus, we see the Son wonderfully revealed again as he goes to the cross in perfect submission to his Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, not, not my will be done, Father, but your will. As he wrestles there, sweat on his forehead like drops of blood. Then he suffers silently upon the cross, bearing our sin and our shame. As he cries out triumphantly, it is finished and he gives up his life. He demonstrates here is the Son of God dying for us. He does it to such an extent that, again, in Matthew's Gospel, the, the Roman centurion who witnesses Jesus die says this, surely he was the Son of God. You see, faith in Jesus is rooted in events in history. Events, actually, that even non-Christian historians won't deny. And those events are brought to life by the third witness John mentions, the Spirit. You see, the water, the testimony of Jesus' ministry, and the, the blood, the testimony of his death, would be cold and distant to us if it wasn't for the work of God's Spirit in us. And today, the Spirit takes the, the truth about Jesus in the Bible, and he writes it on our hearts. He takes the subjective evidence of Jesus and makes it an objective reality in our lives. So that means believing in Jesus, it's, it's not like a complicated maths problem you've got to work out. It's like having cataracts removed from your eyes. That The Spirit of truth takes those events that previously meant nothing to us, and he makes them the very core of our beings. Now, now I've been writing a, a few references for people recently, and uh, they're my testimony to, to what I've seen of them, to, to what they are like and, and what they can do, their, their character and their capabilities. But, but John says here, no, we've got a, a far greater testimony. It's, it's not just the testimony of men. No, no, it's the testimony that God has given about his son. And so, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. See, that's the only alternative. Because if someone gives a testimony, it's tied, isn't it, to their honesty. If you say to me, Daff, I just don't believe what you're telling me, effectively what you're saying to me is, Daff, I think you're lying. And that's the same. If we say, well, I just don't believe what God has to say in the Bible, effectively we're saying, oh, I just think God's a liar. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, the question is, will you accept what God has said about Jesus in this book? I mean, do you think he'd lie to you about his son? Because if you won't accept it, it's not just a, a lifestyle choice or a, a philosophical decision or something you can or can't do. John says, no, if you won't accept it, you're actually making God out to be a liar. And that's a very serious thing to do. 
Because the stakes in accepting the testimony about Jesus and putting your faith in him are very high. Look what John says in verse 11. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's what people want, isn't it? Life. There's actually a a school of life on the web. It's, It's massively popular. It's about discovering emotional intelligence. And loads of people have signed up to it. They they go to meetings. There's there's one coming up where that lovely bloke, Gary Lineker, is going to be giving a talk. He's going to be interviewed at the meeting. It's under the title, Nice Guys Don't Finish Last. That's Gary Lineker for you, isn't it? Nice guy. He's a lovely guy. The School of Life has all sorts of things that will help you in life. They have knowing you flashcards. So you get this knowing yourself flashcards, and on it, you've got questions that help to understand who we really are, what we want, how we feel, and why we react as we do. Now, I think I might need the other set of flashcards I particularly saw advertised. They're the Keep Calm flashcards they offer. The website says this, Every day brings with it new temptations to lose our tempers, the behavior of our partners, colleagues, children, and computers. This set of prompt cards is made up of a succession of eloquent and beautiful reminders of just how we should approach our frustrations. It powerfully summons up our best and calmest selves at precisely the moments when we need them the most. That's the message of the world to you. It's all about you. And often we think that's the message of the Christian life. It's all about you. And we love thinking about us, don't we? I wonder if you can see from the screen, you probably can't, what, what the, f- the, the flash card you can actually see says. It says this, however bad it is, there's always a hot bath. That's our world, isn't it? I can't find my car keys. However bad it is, there's always a hot bath. I know, but the train goes in 10 minutes and I've got to get to the station. Is However bad it is, there's always a hot bath. It could be funny. It can just be desperate, can't it? I've lost my job. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills at the end of the month. However bad it is, there's always a hot bath. My little boy's got a disease, and, and the hospital just can't tell me what it is. And I'm watching him fade away in front of my eyes. Or however bad it is, there's always a hot bath. I'm, I'm looking into the future. And I'm just afraid. Because I can't control myself, let alone control my life. However bad it is, there's always a hot bath. The world says, look to you. You can do it. No, no, really, you can. Just look to you. You can sort it out. You just need to know yourself and read the Keep Calm flashcard to find your truly calm self in the moment of stress. They call their talks sermons. Next Sunday is on grasping opportunity, embracing hedonism, and being more spontaneous. That's April the 9th in the middle of town. If you're not here, I'll know why. (laughs) Or to translate, do you know what that is? Grasping opportunity, embracing hedonism, and being more spontaneous. This is what that means. Grab the chance to do what makes you feel good whenever you feel like it. That's the strap line of our world. Do whatever makes you feel good whenever you feel like it. And day in, day out, people are struggling to make life work, to to find a life where they're loved, a life which has purpose, a life which brings satisfaction, 
And John says, God has given you eternal life. Now, am I the only Christian in the room who tends to live life more according to the philosophy of the school of life than the philosophy of 1 John 5? Am I the only Christian in the room who does that? Who thinks that mustering up strength within myself is what I need to do as I seek to follow Jesus Christ? Or I'll be happy by doing what I want, when I want, as long as it makes me feel good. And John says, no, God has given you eternal life. And that's not just life that goes on forever. That's life with a God quality about it. It's life knowing God as your heavenly father through Jesus Christ, his son. That life starts now. And yes, it goes on forever through death. It's a life you don't earn. God has given you eternal life. And he's given it in one place, his son. Do you see the the word John uses in verse 11? God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. It's an intimate relationship in his son. The Bible pictures that relationship with the son as, as a marriage relationship. Now, you might know that uh, the bride and groom at a wedding, they make their vows to one another, and, and they say this, all that I am, I give to you, all that I have, I share with you. You know, we're wedded together, it's like we're in one another. Often that's not a very fair exchange. He brings a, a big debt and his collection of empty beer bottles. She brings her flat, tidy car, regular income from a secure job, and savings. But, but there's no more extraordinary marriage exchange than the one that we have with Jesus. He says to us, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. My right standing with God, my Father, is yours. You have the status of a son. My permanent access into my Father's presence, it's yours. My powerful spirit who was the one who enabled me to do miracles, he's yours. My, my eternal inheritance in heaven, in paradise, it's yours. You're a co-heir with me. My brothers and sisters in, in God's people in the church, they're all your brothers and sisters now. The, the certain love that my heavenly Father has for me in all eternity, that's yours in me. They're all Yours, says Jesus, because you're united to me in the Son, eternal life. And what does he get in exchange? What do we give to Jesus? The debt of our disobedience to God. Our sin and shame that he bears at the cross. Our constant failure to love God and other people. Our hearts that are so often cold towards him. Our weakness and our doubt our guilt, our death sentence from God. And he gladly takes them. He takes all of them for us. That is eternal life. That is what Jesus says to you. If you have faith in him, he says to you, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. Now, give me all your burdens. And let me bear them for you. So John ends by saying, 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So let me ask you, do you have faith in Jesus, the Son of God? Because God has given you life in him if you do. He he didn't stand at an altar waiting for you. No, rather he stretched out his arms upon a cross and now he offers you life. And if you've known this Jesus for a while... If you've tried to walk with him for many years and it just seems hard work to you, well, well, let me ask you, who are you thinking about most in your life? Are you trying to live by the school of life way? Looking to yourself? Are your eyes fixed on you? Do you like talking about you? Do you stop going to things because of the way they make you feel? Do you think about your relationships in terms of Oh, they just don't help me. Or or, or are your eyes fixed on Jesus and all you have in him, on his beautiful life, on his life-giving death and resurrection, on his certain presence with you, on his promises to take you day by day through this life to a perfect new life to come. A friend of mine has a little trite saying. He says this, One look within... For every ten looks at him. In other words, spend ten times as much of time looking at Jesus as you do looking at yourself. And I fear in our culture, even in our Christian culture, we just love looking at ourselves a lot more than we love looking at Jesus. And John says, that's why you don't feel like you're overcoming. Because you have overcome. Life is in him. Not in you or your circumstances. Who is the one who overcomes the world, if not the one who trusts that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do you live that life of love? Just look to Jesus. That's all you have to do. Tomorrow, open up your Bible and look to Jesus. The next day, open up your Bible and look to Jesus. Meditate on him. Think about him. Pray to him. Talk to each other about him. Dwell on all he is and all he's done for you. And pull your head out your navel. Look to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us eternal life in your Son. It's a gift. Oh, Lord, how we we spend our days striving to make life work not looking to him but looking to ourselves not thinking about him but thinking about ourselves and we can't work out why it doesn't work Lord we praise you for every precious promise we have in Christ and we ask that you'd you'd magnify them to us that we'd wonder at him we'd meditate on him that we'd love him Lord would we look to Jesus and know that in him We have overcome for his name's sake. Amen.